Hello, I'm Kimberly Adams. Welcome to Make Me Smart, where none of us is as smart as all of us. It's Tuesday, the 20th of June. I'm Kai Rizal. Thanks for joining us today. We are post-Juneteenth by a day, but we are going to talk today about the status of the black economy here in 2023. Right, because while Americans did celebrate the emancipation of enslaved people just yesterday, uh, the reality is that economic disparities still exist for black Americans in this country. And what we want to know is what kind of gains and losses have taken place in this economy for black workers in recent years. So here to make us smart on this is Algernon Austin, Director for Race and Economic Justice at the Center for Economic and Policy Research. Welcome to the show. Uh, it's a pleasure to be with you all. Algernon, let me ask you this. The the thing that, that prompted us, to, well, one of the many things that prompted us to do this episode uh, was that um, we had noticed that, that black unemployment in this economy fell to 4.7% in April, a historic low, and, and the gap between overall unemployment and the black unemployment rate, you know, usually double, was, was substantially less than that. It has now started to tick back up, and I, I guess my first question to you is, do you think that was a one-time thing, or are we possibly, hopefully, maybe kind of sort of on the beginning of a trend here? Well, the good news, and it's important to emphasize this, is that we do have a strong labor market. We have a tight mm -hmm. labor market. And when the labor market tightens, that's really uh, positive for black workers. Mm -hmm. That uh, reduces the black unemployment rate and narrows the you know, the dis disparities. So that's positive. However, I, I, the month to month numbers jump a lot. Um, so I tend to look at the longer term trends and really emphasize that. So if we were to average the first five months, instead of looking at the just one month, mm -hmm. uh, we're running a little over 5% unemployment rate for African-Americans, which is good. That's very low for African-Americans. Um, and we really have to put for African-Americans because I've looked at the unemployment rates for the last 60 years, and the median white rate is 5%. Mm -hmm. So, you know, a, a rate above 5% is not anything special if you're a hmm. white person in America. So it's remember it's important to remember that a historically low black unemployment rate is still tends to be a high unemployment rate if you're a white person. Right. right. You know, back in the early days of the Fed, you know, really just no interest rates at all and, and basically free money, uh, there was a lot of talk about the black unemployment rate, how it was always double. And would they let, would the Federal Reserve Board of Governors allow black unemployment to sort of catch up to white unemployment before they started raising interest rates? It didn't. They still started raising interest rates. Um can they manage to lower inflation while holding on to low unemployment rates for black workers? Well, it, again, it depends on what you mean by by low and a low for black people or low in uh, for. I guess lower, lower than yeah, in the past. So, so it's important to recognize, yes, if we go back before the pandemic started, we could see there were several years where the Federal Reserve kept interest rates at almost zero. Um, and that was positive. We saw significant declines in the unemployment rate. But we still had disparities. We still had a roughly two to one ratio. So it's, it's absolutely 
uh, necessary and essential for the Federal Reserve to maintain low interest rates to reduce Black unemployment, but it's not sufficient. You know, I've been working with other organizations argue, arguing for targeted uh, subsidized employment programs because, as I've mentioned, the Federal Reserve for several years had a zero percent interest rate, uh, but it was still not enough. And you can't go, you can't do better than all zero. Um, so we do need the Federal Reserve to, you know, stop hiking in interest rates. The inflation has gone down. Um, but we also have to recognize that the that the Federal Reserve alone has not mm-hmm. has not been able to really solve this problem. We need other policy um measures to solve this problem. Yeah, so hold that thought on other policy measures because I want to get back to fiscal policymakers in a minute. But but uh, it, it, can we talk about kinds of jobs here for a minute? Because it's all well and good that the black unemployment rate in this economy is near record lows for black unemployment, not for, as you point out, overall unemployment. But what kinds of jobs are black Americans getting now? Uh, we have seen some positive signs. You know, a tight labor market really um, makes it more costly to discriminate. So that opens up opportunities. So Mm. that's a positive. Um, And we have seen uh, wage growth. I mean, the tight labor market also means that there you, you uh, employers have to have to compete for workers. So you do see increases in wages and we've seen increases in wages at the lower end of the wage distribution where, black workers are concentrated. So so those are positives, you know. So again, the the labor market there's a lot of positives in the labor market right now, but uh the the unemployment disparity has been pretty durable. Um we do see discrimination in the labor market is pretty durable, but again, with a tight labor market it becomes more expensive to do so, right. so you get less of that. Right. But now we see some of that tightness easing up. Are we about to just see regression in that area? Frankly, that's a safe bet. Uh, again, I've been looking uh, recently, looking at the sixty-year trends, and we've had mm-hmm. tight labor markets before. Um, in two thousand, we had a pretty uh, decent labor market, um, and then you know we we had a recession and and you know, black unemployment rate, again, went into the double digits. 2007, labor market tightened some, and then we had a recession and black unemployment, again, went into the double digits. I mean, even getting pretty close to 20% unemployment. Um, so unfortunately, wow. uh, without, without real um, significant policy change, I, have, I fear that we'll just, just repeat the pattern that we've mm-hmm. been doing for the last 60 years. So let me let me change gears a little bit, but sort of in a related vein and something Kimberly reported on this morning on the morning show um, about companies and corporations and their uh, uh, I'm going to be charitable here. They're apparently waning enthusiasm for DEI after having been so prominently in favor of it after the murder of George Floyd. What do you make of that? Yeah, that's that's unfortunate. Uh, you know, this country needs to 
be open and honest about the facts, not just the past, but the present of racial discrimination. Um, so DEI can um, help us in, in, in that respect. On the other hand, DEI is a very broad and amorphous set of policies and practices. And I, you know, put me in the camp of being a little skeptical about, you know, the 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 concrete material benefits to to black workers from DEI. Um, so it's unfortunate, but I'm not sure that it's, you know, a game changer in any way. Well, I guess that answers my next question, which was going to be, uh, has there been any lasting impact for the good from all of that stuff that, you know, all those initiatives, all those efforts, all those employee resources, resource groups that got started after the George Floyd was murdered? I think in some, in some firms, there probably has been. But uh, as we've seen, whether it's, it's long lasting, I, I'm skeptical uh, given that um, we we're seeing these this pullback, uh, I don't want to be too pessimistic in terms of the access to jobs. We have seen over time, again going over that sixty year time frame, we have seen uh, more black access to a number of you know white collar jobs, high prestige jobs, high paying jobs. So we have. We have made some progress in terms of access. Um, I would argue that we still don't have equal access. We have access, but we don't have equal access um, in terms of the types of jobs. I'm struck by your continued reference of the 60-year window of, of data and experience that you look at. And it occurs to me, and this is an idiotic thing to say out loud, but it's real, this is, you know, for a moment after George Floyd, there was a, in the white community at least, a this is the moment and finally things will start to change for black Americans economically. And, and I suspect the black Americans were, were much more dubious. But, but this is, it's going to be another 60 years uh, of looking at all this data and probably more beyond that, right? Yeah, let me, let me just say one of the reasons why I'm I'm talking about the 60 years is because this year is the 60th anniversary of the March in Washington mm-hmm. for mm-hmm. Jobs and Freedom. Yeah. Yeah. This is the march where King gave his famous I Have a Dream speech. So I've been thinking about this and, you know, uh, as I mentioned, working with other organizations, arguing that we still need jobs and we still need freedom, <laughs> unfortunately, <laughs> 60 years later. Um, so that's why I keep harping on 60 years, because it's been what I've been thinking about and working on. You know, it's so interesting because then and now um, issues of racism and civil rights really are economic issues. Are Is that at least better understood now? Mm, mm, great question. I Unfortunately, I don't think it's... Uh, it's as understood as well as it needs to be. Uh, it was certainly well understood for the organizers of the march, which is why they call it the March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom. Uh, many of the organizers, A. Philip Randolph, Bayard Rustin, came out of the labor movement. They were civil rights activists, but they were also labor activists. So economic justice for them was 
you know, v- you know, really inseparable from broader civil rights struggles. Um, and it's it's a lesson that we really need to uh, keep at the forefront because it's still it's still um, quite significant today. Uh, we still see, you know, the poverty rate much higher for African Americans. We see wealth disparities. You know the the issue of uh, high levels of crime in black communities. That's all correlated with economic hardship um, in in those communities. Algernon Austin is the director for race and economic justice at the Center for Economic and Policy Research. Thank you so much for for your time and your thoughts today. Uh, I'm, I'm glad we had yeah, this conversation. Thank you. Yeah, good stuff. My pleasure. Anytime. Yeah, that was. Uh, that was perfect, actually. Grim. Was, it was it was grim, it was but grim. it was but look, it was it was a great ender, right? It was a great ender. First yeah. of all, any those of you who listen to this podcast know that I'm a big believer in history, and history matters, and it's relevant that it's sixty mm-hmm. freaking years since the march for jobs and freedom. But his point was, we still need jobs and we still need freedom, which is, I mean, yeah. it's a great line, but it's also horribly and tragically still true, you know. It is. I'll be very interested in sort of how people mark that 60th anniversary when it comes up in August, August, you know, and are there going to be any new initiatives or things announced? Will that be another sort of touch point in this moment of, um, you know, sort of the, the push and then the backlash and another push and who knows. Um, But let us know what you think about this conversation we just had. Our number is 508-827-6278, also known as 508-UB-SMART, or email us at makemesmart at marketplace.org, and we will be right back. Okay, before we get to the news fix, I should probably add the disclaimer that if I sound a little different or the background noise sounds a little different, it's because I'm in a car at a NASA spaceport in Wallops Island, Virginia. What are you doing? (laughs) What's there? A a spaceport (laughs) where they launch rockets. Enough said. Uh, Yes. And uh, there's a bunch of students here. Uh, They're here, like, actually constructing rockets to send up their own experiments. And it's really cool. So uh, that's that's why I sound a little bit different. Um, But what are your news fixes? I'm a little jelly. You should be. It's pretty cool out here. I know. I know. I know. I know. All right. So I've got two, one of which just to follow up on um, something we talked about the other day, the idea of Reddit starting to charge big companies for its data for a whole lot of reasons, not the least of which is they want to make money and they don't want to let other people have their money. Remember, we Reddit is changing this thing called an API, and so it's not going to let third-party software developers or companies use its data free of charge. And Reddit, of course, has tons and tons and tons of data. Anyway, here's a headline from uh, CNN today. Hackers threaten to leak stolen Reddit data if company doesn't pay $4.5 million and change controversial pricing policy. So the company is under a whole lot of pressure to go back to what it used to be, which is free access to all that data. Steve Huffman, the CEO of Reddit, did an interview on another public radio program whose initials are Morning Edition, in which he said, we are not going (laughs) back. We are keeping this up. It's a matter of our business and our data. And I just think consumers need to be ready for the cost that this will bring are eventually going to trickle down, right? I mean, if companies have to pay for this to provide you XYZ, 
then they are going to charge you for it. And the days, I think, of all of this stuff being free because you are the product as a consumer for a lot of mm-hmm. social media networks, um, it, it, those days are numbered. And it's a really interesting conundrum because we are the product and yet companies are making boatloads of money off us. And so that's And fighting real. other companies yeah. about whether they can make money off of it while the people actually generating the content and the data make zero dollars. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. So... That's item number one. Item number two for me, just to sort of um, uh, round out the global picture on on um, economic progress and growth. So most listeners will know that the Federal Reserve decided to pause its interest rate hikes last week. Um, the European Central Bank did bump its interest rate up a little bit higher, trying to control inflation. In China, things are going the other way. The Chinese government today, Tuesday, cut uh, its key interest rates, not a whole lot, uh, just a little tiny bit, about a tenth of a percentage point, um, which, you know, the, the U.S. Fed usually moves in quarter of a percentage point increments. But anyway, Chinese government is cutting its interest rates because it needs to stimulate development because its economy, after a really brisk rebound from its zero COVID policy in in last December, January, that is now starting to slow. And China, one of the world's most important economies, wants to keep that growth going. And so mm. be on your toes for that one. It's, um, you know, as China goes, so goes a big chunk of the global economy, including, by the way, the United States. So um, keep your eye on China's economic growth is what I'm saying. Are they seeing any sort of job related consequences um with those interest rate moves the way that we are? Interesting you ask. Youth unemployment, young people unemployment, like 16 to 25 or 18 to 27 or something. Anyway, younger people unemployment is really high. And the challenge is that Mm. they've got tens of millions of new college graduates entering the economy every year. We have lots as well, but Mm. not on the scale of China, right? And so they now have to find jobs for all these people. And that's a really big problem. So yeah, they are having those problems. Yeah. Wow. Uh, That will be interesting to watch to see how they react to that compared to sort of how the U.S. handles those kinds of things. Yeah. I've got two as well. The first one was a super interesting story in The Guardian that I had seen nothing of at this point, but it's a it takes place in Maine. So basically in Maine, there are two companies, two power companies that don't generate the power. They distribute the power. But Mainers like hate these companies. They say mm. they're unreliable and they, you know, when trees come to knock down power lines, they take a long time to repair them. So there is a ballot initiative in Maine that would basically uh, do a hostile takeover of these power companies oh, wow. and have it run statewide by a nonprofit. And these power companies are fighting tooth and nail basically to not be put out of business. And hmm. I'm looking at this Guardian article and they're spending $16.5 million fighting against this initiative. And it's so fascinating because this has happened a couple places in cities or in towns where they've sort of bought out the local power company, switched it over to a nonprofit that's basically like run by the community. But doing it statewide is huge and could definitely set precedent for the rest of the country because one of the arguments for taking it over is that they're not transitioning 
these companies aren't transitioning fast enough to renewable energy and and reducing their carbon emissions because, oh, wow. you know, they want to make a profit. And if it's a nonprofit, you can run that completely differently. So it will be super interesting to find out how this ballot initiative turns oh, out. And sure. I had not heard anything about this story. Huh. Totally. Totally. Isn't that wild? Yeah. Very wild. Very wild. Everything's a business. Yeah. Yeah. So the other one um, is very depressing, um, is the story of the Olympic runner Mm -hmm. who has died. Um, Tori Bowie was found, if people haven't heard, um, dead in her home uh, due to complications with her pregnancy. And this is particularly sad because it highlights an absolutely ridiculous problem that we have in the United States. And I'm just going to read from this essay in the Washington Post about it. The number of Americans dying while giving birth or in the weeks afterward has been increasing since 2018, from 658 that year to 1,205 in 2021. Much more common but often overlooked are the near misses, the life-threatening complications experienced before, during, and after childbirth, And this is particularly true for black women Mm -hmm. who are twice as likely to suffer serious complications during pregnancy and three times as likely to die regardless of income or education. And one of the reasons this is so frightening for so many black women is this is somebody who was in peak physical condition, right? And certainly had access to care. Um, it, According to this article, it seemed like she was a little bit hesitant to have her baby in a hospital, which opens up a whole other conversation about, you know, black people and whether or not we can mm-hmm. trust the medical system to treat her, treat us well, particularly when it comes to black women and, and giving birth. And it's just astonishing and sad and ridiculous that in a country like ours, we have, you know, mortality rates like this around childbirth. And I just wanted to mark this moment. Yeah. So marked. It's, it's unbelievable. Totally. Yeah. All right. Uh, that is uh, the news. The mailbag is where we go next. Hi, Kai and Kimberly. This is Godfrey from San Francisco. Jesse from Charleston, South Carolina. And I have a follow-up question. It has me thinking and feeling a lot of things. A bus just went by that said Virginia Space Flight Academy. This is so cool. All right. But here on the show, we've been talking a lot about, well, I'm sorry. I've been talking a lot about (laughs) mermaids. You know what's funny is I still haven't seen the movie. (laughs) Oh, my Lord. Oh, boy. Anyway, I've been talking a lot about mermaids on the show lately, and we got this uh, voicemail from Beth. Voicemail. Hi, this is Beth calling from New York City. Regarding the mermaid economy, Saturday, the 17th of June, is Coney Island's annual mermaid parade, where people in fun mermaid and ocean-themed costumes parade across the boardwalk and throw fruit into the ocean to welcome the beginning of summer. It's just a silly, wild party. It's an art parade. It's not for a holiday. It's not to commemorate anything. It's just for fun. Thanks for making me smart. Learn something new in this job every single day. 
And that's what I love about this whole mermaid thing. It's like, it's just for fun. And all these people, you know, in mermaid tales, just, just having fun, not hurting anybody, not bothering anybody, just, just wanting to have fun. I love it. Mermaids having fun. All right, here's another one. Hi, Damien from Seattle. Thanks for coming to Seattle and uh, bringing up our Seattle dogs. But I was shocked to hear <laughs> that none of you guys had tried one. I actually didn't have one for many, many, many years uh, after living here. And one day a uh, street vendor offered to have no upcharge for the cream cheese uh, if I didn't like it. And I tried it, and I loved it, and now I have one every time I'm down by the stadium. And when people come out of town come, I insist that they do the same and offer to pay uh, the price difference if they don't like it. So uh, try next time you're here. I, I don't, I don't, uh... I, I don't, I don't think I'm going to do that. Yeah. Um, I don't like cream cheese in general, so I don't, I don't think but, I'm going to love it. Well, also though, just ew, just ew. Look, I don't want to ooh anybody else. What is it? I, I don't know. Don't, don't yuck their yum. Else's I, know. yum. I, know. Yeah, I know. Yeah, yuck their yum. That's it. All right. <laughs> anyway, last question as we All do. Right. What is something you thought you knew but later found out you were wrong about, which is the Make Me Smart question. Here we go. Hi, this is Meredith from Monrovia, California. Monrovia. And one thing I thought I knew that I later found out I was wrong about is that I thought I had all the Make Me Smart I could ever need. And oh, then <laughs> I listened to the live episode, and I realized that what I really need in life is a live version of Make Me Start. Oh, so bring Lord. it down to L.A., and I look forward to seeing Kai and Kimberly in person when you oh, guys come to goodness. town. Oh, my goodness. Oh, well, I mean, sure, but, you know, not our choice. We'll see how the powers <laughs> that be. We're just the talent. Oh, my God. We're just, we just talking to a microphone. There but you go. Uh, tell your local public radio station to invite us. <laughs> anyway, what have you been wrong about that you thought you were right about? You can leave us a voice message with your answer to the Make Me Smart question. Our number is 508-827-6278, also known as 508-UB-SMART. Today's episode of Make Me Smart, which is the podcast you are listening to, is produced by Courtney Berg, Seeker Ellen Rolf, as writes our newsletter. Today's program was engineered by, just checking, yes, Jay Siebold, still there. <laughs> Ming-Shin Siguan's going to mix it down later. Big welcome to our new intern, Nilu Shabandi. Welcome. Ben Tolliday and Daniel Ramirez composed our theme music. Our senior producer is Marissa Cabrera. Bridget Bodner is the director of podcast. Francesca Levy is the executive director of digital. And Marketplace's vice president and general manager is Neil Scarborough. 